Stellenbosch, South Africa, a blissful town that rests at the feet of the great Drakenstein and Stellenbosch mountains. The town itself is the second oldest European settlement in the Western Cape province, second to Cape Town, situated 31 miles to the east. Just outside of Stellenbosch lies the wealthy Desarza Golf Estate, a secure and gated community that boasts millionaire residents. But in January of 2015, the sense of security that the gates provided this rich community would disintegrate into a million pieces, and the police would uncover a house truly filled with horrors. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to talk about the sponsor for today's episode and give a massive thank you to the people over at Ridge for helping to keep this channel afloat. The Ridge wallet is an amazingly light and sleek wallet made specifically to hold cards and designed beautifully to fit into any pocket. With two metal plates held together by a durable elastic band, it's super easy to fit the cards you need for your day-to-day -day ventures inside and to only take the cards you need with you. So it's time to throw out your old bulky wallets and switch to this amazing, incredible, slimline wallet. The Ridge wallet comes in a large range of colors and styles, including carbon fiber, aluminum, and titanium. So you are sure to find a wallet that'll suit anyone in your life. It makes a great Christmas present. And the kind people over at Ridge have hooked you all up with a little holiday deal. Head on over to ridge.com forward slash Josh choose from their stunning line of wallets and make sure you use code Joshua to get 10% off at checkout. Again, thank you to Ridge for sponsoring this episode. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Henry Christo van Breda was born on the 1st of November 1994 in Pretoria to parents Martin and Teresa van Breda. Martin and Teresa had gotten married four years prior in February of 1990 and had already had a, another child, Rudy, two years before Henry had been born. Now, not long after Henry had joined the family, the couple welcomed their third child into the world in October of 1998, who they named Marley. The family lived happily together in Pretoria, with their eldest son Rudy being enrolled at Woodhill College School, being joined by their second oldest son Henry in 2001. By the time 2006 came around, not long after Henry had turned 12, the family decided that they wanted a change, and so they uprooted and moved to Perth, Australia, enrolling Henry as a grade 6 learner at Stiloretto Primary School. It was while Henry was in Australia that he developed what is now considered to be his closest friendships and relationships, 
this period of Henry's life, as he began to go through puberty and began to try to figure out who exactly he was as a person, he quickly found himself emotionally invested and attached to his friends in Australia. Henry dated two different girls while he was at high school, with each relationship being exactly what you would expect from a high school coupling. They were short term, they didn't really mean anything, and probably started and ended as recess began and ended. Following his graduation from the Loretto Primary School and from the subsequent high school, Henry matriculated at Scotch College, a very prestigious college in Perth in 2012. And following that, Henry enrolled to study physics at Melbourne University. It's safe to say that Henry's father, Martin van Breda, was a very successful man. By 2014, he had become the director of at least 25 companies across Australia and in South Africa, even owning the Australian subsidy of the international property group Engel and Walkers. Martin van Breda had even developed and funded a private school back in Pretoria, South Africa, alongside another company that tracks and recovers stolen vehicles. He definitely didn't keep all his eggs in one basket. And as you can imagine, such variation of business ventures provided the Van Breda family with a substantial financial backing. According to some sources, the family had an estimated wealth of over 17 million US dollars. I was unable to pinpoint the exact reason for the family's return back to South Africa, but what we do know is that in January of 2014, the family once again uprooted and moved to the gated de Zalza Golf Estate just outside of Stellenbosch, South Africa. The official court documents list their reasons for moving back to South Africa as being due to Martin van Breda needing to be closer to his business ventures there and his wife, Teresa, wanting to be closer to her family. Martin, Teresa, and their youngest child, Marley, all moved back over to Stellenbosch, leaving Rudy, their eldest child, and Henry in Australia as they finished their studies at the University of Melbourne. The house they eventually moved to in this gated community in March of 2014, after temporarily staying elsewhere, was luxurious and the estate itself was rich with amenities. It had its own golf course, a nearby small airport, and a significant level of security. A security company was contracted to provide security personnel to the estate at the entrance gates and guards who paroled the grounds. This same company also used advanced technology to monitor the electric fence alarms, beams, and the camera surveillance systems that protected the wealthy community. All of this security was remotely monitored from a control room about 35 kilometers away in Paro, Cape Town. To gain entry to the estates, you first must go through one of the three access controlled gates, which were all monitored by security personnel at all times. There did exist unmanned gates, though these were kept locked and protected by CCTV cameras. A 7.5 kilometer long electrified fence surrounded the perimeter of the estate, which was reinforced with a barrier fence and in some places, anti-dig measures. 
There is a river that runs through the gated community, though the river is further protected with an electric fence and locked gates with barbed wire at the inlets and outlets, stretching the width of the river. All of this effectively meant that you couldn't really enter the estate without being seen by a guard, setting off an alarm, or being caught on the 24-7 monitored CCTV system. Unless, I guess, you decided to parachute into the estate in the middle of the night, but even then, there were patrolling guards who would have likely been able to see you, so think again. This place even had thermal cameras. You would have more luck trying to steal the crown jewels than getting into the estate without somebody seeing you or knowing or setting off some kind of alarm. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In August of 2014, Henry Van Breda, the middle child, dropped out of the University of Melbourne and moved from Australia into the new family home in Stellenbosch. The youngest sibling, Marley, had started attending a school in Somerset West soon after she had and her parents had moved to the new property. But Henry, following the termination of his studies, didn't really have any other reason to move to Stellenbosch by his family. He didn't really have any idea where he was going next, though it could easily be hypothesized that he had intended to work with his father, Martin, in running all of their business ventures. The oldest sibling, Rudy, had remained in Australia and intended to complete his master's at the University of Melbourne. Rudy did travel over to South Africa to visit, though, flying over in December of 2014 with his girlfriend for the holiday season. Overall, the Van Breda family were known to be well-educated, clever, and well-mannered. Martin, in particular, was highly regarded within the business community on account of his achievements and integrity. He was a dominant figure, and the entire family were financially very stable and secure. Martin's brother would later describe the family as being close-knit and not having any enemies. There were no indications that anyone would have a grudge against the family at all. In mid-January, after a memorable, fun, and relaxing Christmas season together as a family, Rudy's girlfriend, who had been staying with the Van Breeders during this holiday period, boarded a flight back to Australia to spend the remainder of the Christmas break with her family. Rudy, on the other hand, remained in South Africa and booked a flight to return to Australia for mid-February. The Van Breeder family seemed to have it all. A life of luxury and privilege, a loving and supportive family environment, and all three of the Van Breeder children had a bright and hopeful future ahead of them. That was until one January night when the Van Breeder family's idealistic and luxurious lifestyle would be flipped upside down into a world taken straight from your deepest and darkest nightmares.
one is Stephen. What is your emergency? I um yeah, I need an ambulance. Lots of um. You need an ambulance. Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Brada. Henry, what's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Huska Street, please. What is this number that you're phoning from? <sighs> is there someone else that can speak if you're not able to? No. I'm Who else is in the house? There's no one else. Uh, I need else the contact number, please. Yeah, okay. And you need the ambulance to go to what? Number 12, Hoska Street. Someone has attacked my family in my house. Okay, so you need the police. Oh, well, ambulance. And an ambulance, please. Yeah. Now, who is um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house. Everyone, four people. Yes, three adults and one teenage girl. Yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries. I look. Are they conscious? I don't, I don't think so. My sister's moving, but that's it. Are there any suspects on scene? Uh, no, no, they ran away. With what were they attacked? I um a, an an axe. I, it it was I, I I think I blacked out and I've just woken up. Okay, what kind of injuries is there? Um, my 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 family and we were attacked by a guy with an oh. axe. With an axe, unconscious. You see. Unconscious, huh? Yes, and bleeding from the head, please. We're going to revisit this emergency services call later on in this case. The call itself lasted 25 minutes, ending at 7.37am. Two police officers, a sergeant and his partner, arrived at the main gate into the estate at 7.40am. Security guards promptly allowed the two officers access through the secure gates, passing through at not 30 seconds after arriving. With the assistance of this security guard, the two officers rushed to Hosker Street, taking less than a minute to arrive on scene. When they arrived, the sergeant noted that the front door of the Van Breeder family home was slightly ajar. As the two officers approached the property, both with their firearms drawn, Henry ran out of the front door wearing grey sleeping shorts and white socks. Immediate observations of Henry detailed that he had sustained minor injuries and had dried blood on his body. Blood splatters were present on both his grey sleeping shorts and his boxer shorts. Henry was very emotional, scared, and was trembling slightly. The sergeant would later say that Henry appeared to be traumatised, as one could expect given the nature of the nightmare that had unfolded within his family home. As soon as Henry ran out of the property, he told the sergeant that his family had been attacked by somebody with an axe and he begged them to go into the house to check on them. The sergeant instructed his partner to sit Henry down at the front door of the house, which his partner did. It was at this point that the family's dog, Sasha, emerged from the home and sat on Henry's lap as he came to terms with the horrors that he had just witnessed. 
It took an ambulance a significant time to actually arrive on scene, though when it finally did, Henry was taken to the ambulance where they administered first aid. You see, Henry had actually sustained a minor stab wound, and so the paramedics dressed the wound and began to take photographs for evidence. The police took Henry's grey sleeping shorts and his white socks to be processed as evidence, leaving him dressed only in his boxer shorts. The sergeant would later claim to have smelled alcohol on the breath of Henry. So what exactly happens? What nightmare lurks within the family home? The sergeant who entered the family home enabled his body camera to record the crime scene as he walks through it. A lawyer called Tracy Stewart published a walkthrough of the scene, creating a diagram of the house as it was found. The following house walkthrough graphics are copyright of Tracy Stewart and her team, though we have modified this graphic to turn it into an animated walkthrough. Let's take a look. The sergeant entered the home through the front door and immediately took note of a laptop that was sat upon the dining table. On the seat lay an open handbag, presumably Teresa Van Breeders. The contents of the handbag hadn't been disturbed. Credit cards and bank account cards remained inside it. Interestingly, it would later transpire that nothing was actually taken from the house at all. The officer also noted cigarettes, which were on the countertop in the kitchen, with some of them falling onto the floor. A bottle of red wine and wine glasses were also on this counter. It was from this counter that Henry made the call to emergency services. In the kitchen itself, drawers containing cooking knives and other utensils had been pulled open. The pantry door was ajar, and the rear door was also left slightly open. The sergeant continued to clear the bottom floor, working his way swiftly from room to room. Two luxury vehicles were found completely untouched in the family's garage. After ensuring the bottom floor was safe, he progressed up the staircase to the top floor. On the stairs, the sergeant found a bloodied axe lodged into the wall. At the top of the stairs, the sergeant found Henry's younger sister Marley and his mother Teresa savagely attacked. As he took the gruesome scene that was before him in, the sergeant saw Marley's right leg and foot move, followed by her right arm. This prompted him to immediately request the paramedics to come in and provide medical aid. Sadly, Teresa Van Breeder was pronounced dead at the scene. Her daughter Marley, though, fighting for her life, was carried down the stairs and into an ambulance on a stretcher. It was quickly concluded that Teresa had been attacked in the doorway to the bedroom on the left of the house, known as the boys' room. The sergeant then entered the boys' room and discovered Martin Van Breeder, Henry's father, and Rudy Van Breeder, Henry's older brother, sadly deceased. Both had been brutally attacked. Martin had been found on Rudy's bed with impact wounds on his back, indicating that he'd been attacked from behind. He had no defensive wounds, which indicated that Martin hadn't likely been aware of the danger he was in. Rudy's body had been found at the foot of Henry's bed, with the duvet from Henry's bed bundled up and lying next to him. Outside, the sergeant walked the perimeter of the property and found the back gate to have been closed, with the key still in its lock. The house didn't really show any real indications of a burglary or robbery gone wrong, Bar the areas where the murders had taken place, the house wasn't in a state of disarray. No valuable items had been taken. 
the open handbag on the ground floor would have been in the direct path of the attacker or attackers as they went up and down the staircase, as with the laptop, but it was left untouched. Attackers would have further walked past these items as they fled the property. No signs of forced entry or exits were found anywhere in the home. The axe that had been used in the attacks and that had been lodged in the wall on the staircase had come from the family's pantry, meaning the murder weapon had been owned by the Van Breeders. Three members of the Van Breeder family found butchered, another member critically injured, but one remains practically unscathed, Henry. Henry had sustained a reasonably large bump on the left side of his head, swelling under his left eye and superficial cuts to his body. He also had a minor stab wound, about one centimetre deep in his abdomen. Investigators had one pressing question. What the hell had happened? And only two people knew the answer to that question. Marley, who was in a life-threatening condition and who was unconscious, and Henry, who was comparatively completely fine. So what had Henry seen? This is his account of events. Henry had risen in the middle of the night, needing to use the bathroom, and it was as he was on the toilets that he heard noises coming from the bedroom he shared with his older brother Rudy. Henry puts his phone in his pocket and looks through a gap in the toilet door, which is when he saw someone attacking his brother Rudy. In a state of desperation and fear, Henry shouted out at the attacker, which resulted in his father Martin running into the room and switching on the lights. That was when the attacker turned on his father, laughing as he attacked him with the axe. Henry describes the attacker as being unknown to the family, someone who had worn black gloves, dark clothes, and a balaclava-type mask. Likely as a result of the screams coming from the boy's bedroom, both Henry's mother, Teresa, and Henry's younger sister, Marley, came running into the bedroom to see what was happening. As they entered the room, the attacker swung the axe at the mother and daughter, fatally injuring Teresa and critically injuring Marley, all while laughing. Henry then emerged from his hiding place in the bathroom and fought with the attacker. He was actually able to take the axe from the attacker's hands, but not without the attacker pulling a knife taken from the kitchen drawers downstairs and stabbing him in the side. The attacker then fled down the stairs, and Henry threw the axe in an attempt to stop him, narrowly missing the attacker, lodging it into the wall of the staircase. Henry chased the attacker down the stairs, through the kitchen, and out the back door. As Henry chased this attacker, he claimed to have heard the attacker calling out to another intruder in the house in Afrikaans, though as the attacker fled out the rear door of the property, Henry turned back around and went back inside. Henry claims to have not known the number for the emergency services, and so he attempted to call his girlfriend, though she didn't pick up. He then climbs back up the staircase. Upon seeing his mother butchered at the top of the stairs, Henry collapsed. It's unclear how long Henry was unconscious for, but when he came to, he googled the police emergency number and phoned for help. Despite this clearly extremely traumatising account of events, the detectives weren't convinced. Putting the facts that nothing had been taken from the house aside, several other suspicious factors presented themselves. The first major factor was the matter of the family dog, Sasha. 
On all accounts, the family dog made no noise to warn the Van Breda family of the intruders when they entered the house. Henry's accounts and statements was very comprehensive, but it didn't once detail the family dog barking or making a noise prior to the savage attacks that took place. Neither was it listed where the family dog had been while all of this took place. Sasha, the family dog, usually slept between the two beds in the boys' bedroom. Her dog bed was still present when the crime scene was documented. There were additional dog beds in the study downstairs, in the living room, and in Marley's bedroom, and a dog flap in stores that allowed Sasha to use the garden. Sasha's study bed was located outside the entrance to the study, and was close to the drawers and cupboards that the intruders allegedly went through. The living room dog bed was actually located at the bottom of the staircase, directly in line with the path the intruders would have taken. Interestingly, Henry claims that the responding police officers had brought the dog to him when they had arrived on the scene, but the police officers claimed that Sasha and Henry were already sat together outside when they had arrived. A strange contradiction of statements, I have to say. Henry claims he had no idea where Sasha had been or had gone during the attacks. He only mentions that the dog was a house dog. He did go on to also testify that Sasha had actually been somewhat ill at the time of the attacks. Henry claims that Sasha had been on medication for a disability. He also claims that Sasha wasn't the kind of dog to bark in the middle of the night. Apparently, the family dog wasn't able to climb the staircase by herself without being carried. She wasn't immobile, she just struggled with the stairs. Henry stated that he was unable to recall carrying Sasha upstairs the evening prior to the attacks, resuming her to have remained downstairs to sleep. He also stated that he was unsure whether or not the family dog had been on her medication that night or not. Medication that would cause a noticeable change in behaviour for Sasha, such as not barking that night or being too out of it to um, realise what was going on. It could be easily explained that in the middle of an extremely traumatic event, Henry simply forgot or didn't take notes of where his dog was, focusing on the danger at hand. Henry further claims that Sasha was completely deaf, which is a complete lie. Sasha would bark at the doorbell, the phone ringing, and other noises coming from outside the house. A friend of the family later testified, saying that Sasha would bark a lot when you arrived at the family home, but would calm down after a while and that Sasha would, indeed, be able to hear the doorbell, etc. Sasha used to run up to the front door whenever the doorbell rang. Henry countered all this by saying that Sasha wouldn't ever bark at night, and only bark at those she knew. It just all seems very suspicious, and honestly, Henry was giving seasoned politicians a run for their money with the amount of shites he was spouting. Even more contradictory was Henry's testimony that when he had regained consciousness after passing out on the staircase, he had heard Sasha's barking at an incoming phone call. Now, it's important to note that Henry's initial statements that he gave to the police and his later testimony in court actually had some varying differences, and this was one of them, that he heard Sasha barking. Both Henry's cell phone and the landline received calls shortly before the police arrived, like literally the minute before, but the call logs did not detail any other incoming calls. Those calls that had, had come in 
minutes before the police arrived were from the police and emergency services trying to figure out where they were. So if Sasha was completely deaf, even if it were the medication that she was on that had caused it, she shouldn't have been able to hear the phone call, but she did. The next odd factor with this case lied with the intruders themselves. Why had they not brought their own weapon with them if they had intended to attack the family in the way they had? The crime scene was indicative of not a robbery gone wrong, but a targeted attack on the Van Breeder family. The intruders entered the property with the intention of murdering them. So why hadn't they brought their own weapon? They had instead retrieved the family's own axe from the pantry and a knife from the kitchen before commencing their attacks. It was also deemed peculiar that only one of the attackers, armed with both of the weapons, the axe and the knife, went upstairs, while the other allegedly remained downstairs. Now it could be argued that this second intruder had been acting as a lookout, but something wasn't sitting right. A further factor of suspicion was the attacker's complete disregard for Henry's presence in the bathroom. According to his own accounts, Henry had shouted and had made noise during the attacks, but the attacker seemed to have simply ignored him and only engaged in a fight after being confronted by Henry. The intruder quite literally turned his back on Henry as he attacked his family members, creating a significant vulnerability and opportunity for Henry to attack the intruder from behind and overpower him. But Henry didn't try to do that, despite the opportunity, and it wasn't as if Henry wasn't a strong person, he was tall and well-built, he was a young man. With the advantage of the attacker's back being turned, it wouldn't have been a challenge to overpower the intruder. Further, when Henry did eventually confront the intruder, why didn't the intruder call out for backup from the second intruder? Why, after having the axe disarmed, would the intruder proceed to try to stab Henry, despite Henry wielding the axe? Was this intruder simply lacking brain cells, or was there something more at play here? When Henry had possession of the axe, why did he not immediately swing at the intruder? And why did he throw the axe after the intruder as he fled? Forensics concluded that he would have easily been within striking distance. Henry had become frozen with fear as each member of his family were attacked. He hadn't attempted to overpower the intruder with his father, which the two of them would have easily been able to do, but he was brave enough to confront the intruder and chase after him. Something just wasn't adding up for the authorities. The intruder had also stood in between the beds in the boy's room when he had launched the first attack on Rudy, instead of attacking from a less vulnerable position. It would have been obvious that there were another person sleeping in that room, likely somebody in the bathroom. So why did this intruder open himself up to so many vulnerabilities and cut himself off from the only way in and out of the bedroom? Even more factors began to surface as forensics and pathologist reports began to land on the investigators' desks. It was concluded that Henry's father Martin had run and jumped onto the bed, jumping over Rudy to protect his son. Why did Martin put himself in fatal danger by doing so, when he could have just run around the bed and attacked the intruder directly, unless Martin didn't anticipate for the attacker to strike him? This indicated that Martin likely knew the attacker. He wouldn't purposefully make himself an easy target, leaving his family behind with an armed intruder. 
it is only logical to conclude that the attacker was known to Martin, as if he was unknown, then logically he would have attempted to disarm the intruder to prevent further attacks. Forensics also shows that Rudy, after being attacked in his bed and after his father had jumped on top of him to protect him, was dragged out of the bed by his feet and put at the bottom of Henry's bed. Why? When did the intruder have time to do that? It didn't fit into Henry's timeline of events. Even if Henry suddenly felt safer wielding the axe after cowering in fear in the bathroom, why did he suddenly get the confidence to chase after the intruders following f throwing this axe into the wall? Now, obviously, a person may not think logically or clearly during a traumatic event, and we can't expect someone to behave like a knight in shining armor while such a traumatic event was taking place. But his own testimony and accounts raised more questions than it did answer. A human's most basic instinct is survival is to protect yourself, your family, and your loved ones, which makes Henry's behavior after the intruders had fled even more strange. Why had he left the back door open instead of locking it? If there were still killers at large, it would have been instinctual to have locked that door and prevent any re-entry. Another factor we have to revisit here was that the two intruders had used knives found within the kitchen drawers. Now let's assume that the intruders had been disarmed and that they had run out of the back door. They both would have passed the open knife drawer. The second intruder would have heard the struggles. Why didn't he arm himself? Why did they not even attempt to quote, finish the job? Henry claimed to have already been trying to Google the local emergency numbers as he re-entered the home after chasing the intruders out. And he did state that he tried to call his girlfriends at the time instead of immediately trying to call emergency services. This takes us back to the phone call to emergency services, a call made from the family's landline and not his own mobile phone that he had in his hands. The call was exceptionally long and it took five minutes before Henry even mentioned the degree of injury his family had sustained. He didn't once go to check on his family members or attempt any kind of first aid. Every second that was spent on that call would have been a second that could have been used to save his family's lives. Henry further didn't attend to his own wounds. He had a stab wound that was bleeding. The call was 25 minutes long and a lot can happen medically within 25 minutes. Henry's actions amidst the traumatic circumstances were not judged based on their shortfallings of the expected norms, but his actions couldn't all be justified by the traumatic circumstances, or should I say, lack of actions. Henry was able to function under the circumstances. He had tried to phone his girlfriend. He was calm and collected during the emergency services phone call. So why did he not instinctually go to his family's aid? How did these intruders gain access to the secure gated estates without setting off any of the alarms? The security company contracted for the estates presented a report to the courts, which stated that three alarms were actually set off that night, all activated on the perimeter fence. The first was at 7pm, 1am and then 3am. However, the guards working the night shift hadn't been dispatched to investigate, as according to them, the alarms hadn't knowingly been activated. They had all been functioning, the guards checked each system at the start of each shift, so why the inconsistency? 
was this security company simply trying to save face. Henry's younger sister Marley was 16 years old at the time of the attack and had sustained head injuries and had her jugular vein severed during the attack. Fortunately, Marley actually recovered from her injuries after spending a lot of time in hospital. The investigators were desperate to speak to her. Marley could concretely say who her attacker had been on that horrific January night. Though, when Marley was asked, she reportedly stated that she had no memory of the attacks. Amnesia following an attack and trauma is very common, but this meant the prosecution had only Henry's accounts to go on, accounts riddled with inconsistencies and suspicions. Henry Van Breda was arrested a year and five months after the triple murders, and charged on five counts. Three counts of murder of his brother Rudy, father Martin, and mother Teresa. One count of attempted murder of his younger sister Marley, and one count of defeating or obstructing the administration of justice. Henry's bail was set at 100,000 South African Rand, or 6,600 US dollars, or just shy of 5,000 Great British Pounds. He was released on bail the following day after his arrest. A pretrial hearing was held in September of 2016, which resulted in the case being postponed to allow the prosecution to collect further forensic evidence. The trial against Henry Van Breda commenced on the 4th of April 2017, and a verdict was reached the following month on the 21st of May. Henry, during this time, was actually diagnosed with epilepsy, which he claimed to have been responsible for his fainting on the night of the murders. The trial was long and its conclusion detailed. Let's take a look at some extracts from the court's conclusion. The court finds that no credible convincing evidence exists to the effect that an intruder entered the estate and the Van Breda residence on the night of the murders. Taking into account the type of weapon, the number and nature of the injuries, the perpetrator had to have the intention to kill the victims. Even if the accused, Henry, experienced a possible generalized tonic-clonic epileptic seizure or other type of seizure when losing consciousness on the stairs. He was fully conscious and responsible for his actions before the possible seizure happened, and therefore he would have known what he was doing. The following object facts establish that the accused Henry was the perpetrator as the only reasonable inference. 1. The victims lived in a security estate with no evidence of any unlawful entry to the estate at the time of the incident. 2. Though not impenetrable, a reasonably high degree of skill, knowledge of the layout of the estate and its security system, and, of course, some expertise and planning required to unlawfully enter the premises. 3. Fortuous unlawful entry was most unlikely. 4. No evidence typical of a house robbery or break-in showing any intruder or intruders having been inside the house is evidence. 5. Four of the five members of a family were found brutally attacked in a similar fashion and left for dead. 6. The family members were all in very close proximity in the sleeping quarters of the house. 7. The accused was left standing, having lived through the events. 8. The accused presented with injuries supposedly inflicted by the same attacker during the same incident and in execution of the same intent, yet markedly different in nature and extent to that of the rest of his family. 9. The evidence establishes conclusively that some, if not all, of the injuries were self-inflicted. 
10. The version the accused, Henry, provided of how the incident occurred is inconsistent with the objective evidence found on the scene. 11. The accused amended material aspects of his version upon becoming aware of the irreconcilability of his version with material aspects of the evidence. Each piece of evidence on its own might not be enough to establish the guilt of the accused, but the cumulative effects of all the pieces conclude the puzzle. This leads to only one reasonable inference. This is true even if the court is to ignore the DNA evidence or the statements the accused made to the police. With regard to count 5, defeating or obstructing the administration of justice and the alleged staging of the scene by the accused by inflicting injuries to his person and hitting the axe into the wall above the staircase, the court finds that the accused Henry had ample time during the 2 hours and 48 minutes period to tamper with the scene, portraying him to be a victim and to be consistent with his innocence. The damage to the wall above the staircase was caused by the axe with a controlled action and that the axe was not thrown as alleged by the accused. The accused admitted that he had handled the axe at that stage and it was admitted by both counsel for the state and the defence that the mark was caused by the axe. The accused admitted that he caused the mark with the axe. No evidence exists that any of the victims was attacked on the first landing. In the absence of an intruder, the only reasonable inference is that he wanted to mislead the police and courts by fabricating the version that he threw the axe at a fleeing intruder. Whether the accused threw the axe at the wall because he wanted to stage the scene, or whether he staged the scene with a controlled action. Subsequently, to the commission of the crimes, the accused intentionally inflicted injuries upon himself and told the police that the victims and he were attacked by an intruder in order to mislead the police as to the true identity of the perpetrator. Furthermore, the accused intentionally wanted to mislead the police and courts for the very same purpose as the reason for the axe being thrown or hit against the wall. The accused deliberately committed positive acts of obstruction and supplied the police with false information that the police acted upon by launching a search for the alleged intruder. He must have known that the allegations were false and must have been aware of the facts that it might interfere with judicial proceedings which were to take place in the future or would at least hamper or forestall the investigation of the crimes. Christ, that was such a long extract. Subsequently, Henry Van Breda was found guilty on three counts of murder for the murder of his older brother Rudy, his father Martin, and his mother Teresa. He was also found guilty on one count of attempted murder, for the attack on his younger sister Marley, and guilty on one count of obstruction of justice. Henry, who was 20 years old at the time of his attacks on his family, was sentenced to three life sentences on the murder charges, 15 years for the attempted murder and a further 15 years for obstruction of justice. This leaves us all with one big question. Why? Many people speculate that Henry had actually been abusing substances and he had been using an allowance given to him by his parents to purchase those drugs. It is hypothesised that his parents had found out about his drug use and had subsequently cut his allowance. There has never been an explanation from Henry. He still insists he is innocent to this day. Only his girlfriend, who is still with him, believes him.
There was a lot of forensic evidence in this case, and I mean a lot. And I, if I were to discuss each piece, this video would be extremely long and somewhat boring. Marley has since recovered from the tragedy, at least physically, and she has been the sole inheritor of the Van Breeders' fortune, though access will only be granted when she turns 21, which I believe was last year or this year? Last year. If money was truly the motive for Henry, he will never see a dime. I hope to my very core that he rots away behind those bars for eternity, and I sincerely hope that Marley is able to somehow find comfort in the justice that has been served and try to move forward with her life. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode. If you have a case that you would like me to cover on this channel, then head on over to requestacase.com and send in your submissions there. My merch store is still live, so if you wanted to grab something, then head over to joshuamiles.shop. Follow me over on Twitter and Instagram for any updates. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.